Thanks for tuning in today. We're going to talk about how to defend and more importantly, how to win when you're defending a motion for temporary and medical benefits. Again, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for your patience. Uh, uh, for some reason, uh, sometimes you come in and your computer just works slightly differently than it did the last time that we did this presentation. So here we are. Uh, my name is Greg Lois. I am the managing partner of Lois Law Firm. And I'm also the director of the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Practice here at Lois. Um, I've been doing New Jersey Workers' Comp Defense for 21 years. And in fact, my first job out of law school was as a law clerk to the Division of Workers' Compensation in New Jersey. So this has been what I've been doing for my whole career, and I absolutely love what I do. So uh, thanks for tuning in, and uh, let's talk a little bit about how we defend motions in New Jersey. Now, before we jump in, I just want to note, um, I write two books on this topic. Uh, the first one is meant for attorneys and judges, and it's the LexisNexis Practice Guide. This comes out every year. As you can tell, it's pretty thick. And it's full of legal jargon and Latin words and case citations. And, uh, you know, if you want to read this, um, good luck. Uh, it's fun. It'll help you fall asleep if you have insomnia. But I also write a more simplistic or really a little bit more straightforward plain English guide to workers' compensation in New Jersey. And it's called the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Law Handbook, right? And we send this out to clients. As you can tell, it's a lot thinner. Uh, it's got a lot more uh, cheat sheets and just basically the information you need to know. And it's written in plain English. So if you're handling uh, a risk professional or an attorney, uh, we, we say, hey, take a look at this handbook. And I put a copy of the handbook uh, in today's um, handout. So if you don't have a copy of our handbook, uh, please go into the handout section during this live webinar. You can download it and grab it. Um, you'll also discover there's a chapter in there on defending motions for med intent, which really goes into more fully, you know, the case specifics and the regulations and the rules. So you'll have that as a resource. We come out with a new uh, handbook every year and we try to update it when the law changes. Our next handbook is gonna come out in November of 2022. And most of our clients, to be frank with you, do not even read that whole handbook. I know it's not something you're gonna sit on the beach, you know, with your toes in the sand and sort of read that book. But they go to the very back of the book and there's cheat sheets in there for New Jersey, which really makes handling the state a little bit more coherent and a little easier. So that's uh, something that we hand out. So hopefully you've gotten a chance to download that. Now today we're gonna to talk about uh, one of my favorite topics because there's so much misinformation out there about what is a motion for med intent and can it be de defended. In order to get into the nuts and bolts of today's discussion, I'm going to give you just one slide about how medical care works generally in New Jersey and what we can do as a carrier to control and direct care. Then I'm going to sort of di dive into what happens when medical ends and a motion for medical intent is filed. I'm going to talk about the standard motion for med intent and the emergent motion for med intent. And both of these things are important to you as the claims professional or risk manager because both of these are the ways in which the claimant can uh, take away from you medical control in the case and start treating with physicians or uh, obtain treatments that you know we might not deem to be necessary and don't seem curative in nature. So this is chiefly uh, the way that claimants use to arrest control of their case from us uh, and then sort of take the case down the path they want to take it on. And that's why today's topic is especially important.
I'm going to talk about defenses to motions for men and temp, and I'm also going to give you as much practical advice as I can as we go through this presentation. This presentation should take about 15 minutes for me to get through sort of the, the basic information, but this is totally live, so I want you to ask me questions. It makes this so much more fun when people ask questions. Um, I have a little questions tab over there on my computer. Uh, I, at the end of the presentation, sort of the canned remarks, I will open up the question panel and I will answer any questions you have. And they don't have to be on just this topic, it could be really any topic in New Jersey workers' compensation. If you're not sure how to ask a question, you just type it into that little box that should be on your screen or on your laptop or on your uh, phone or whatever device you're paying attention to. I will not embarrass you if your uh, question, if you're like, hey, I don't want to ask this question and have people know I didn't know the answer to it, that's okay. I'm only going to say your first name so you'll know I'm answering your question. I will then read the question to the whole audience so that they can get an idea of what we're actually asking, and then I'll give my best answer to your question. So please type them in. It just totally makes this more interactive and way more fun. And sometimes people are like a little bit hesitant to ask a question because they're like, oh, this one's silly or this is so basic. Please ask the question because I'm sure there's someone else sitting out there um, who's watching this webinar live or watching the video playbook and they probably have the same question as you. So they would probably love to have you ask that question for them. All right, let's just briefly talk about medical treatment under the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act. Section 15 of our statute states that we have an affirmative duty as the employer to provide all necessary medical treatment which will, quote, cure and relieve the petitioner of the symptoms of their work-related injury, illness, or condition. We have this duty, this duty uh, occurs immediately, and then it's our job to make sure they get all of the curative care they, know, they need. Now, the key there is curative treatment. Treatment has to restore functioning, reduce impairment, return the petitioner to employment. That's the definition of curative care in New Jersey. Uh, it is not all care or any care, it's care that's going to restore function, restore workability, reduce medical impairment. Now, there's lots of treatment that doesn't really fit that category, right? Um, once someone's reached a medical plateau, maximum medical improvement, uh, their condition is not going to be improved, well, they might still need medical care after that moment. For example, uh, someone with a low back condition might need some ongoing chiropractic treatment or ongoing physical therapy, or they might need some medications to keep them functional or to reduce pain. That's fine, but if the treatment isn't curative, it's palliative, palliative. Uh, meaning it's not going to improve the person's condition, but it will keep them at their functional baseline. That's also required under Section 15 of the statute. But a motion for medical and temporary disability benefits should be focused on curative medical treatment or wage replacement. That's the temporary disability benefits part of that motion for med and temp name. So those are the two things that the, um, the care should be for. Really, we don't see a lot of motions that are filed for purely palliative care. That would be things like ongoing physical therapy or chiropractic or just medications. This should be for curative care. We're thinking about things like surgeries, invasive care, um, sometimes a care with a specialist that's required. Um, but basic things like palliative care, generally speaking, are not going to be the focus of most motions for med and temp. Now, Remember that under the New Jersey workers' compensation system, you have this amazing power 
and that power is you get to select all the physicians, the facilities, the diagnostic facilities that are going to provide treatment to your injured worker or the petitioner in the workers' compensation case. That's a tremendous power. Don't squander it. Um, this means really that we should be selecting physicians who are going to get the best possible outcome for our petitioner. And that means restoring function, reducing impairment, and giving the petitioner uh, an ability to return to work in some capacity. Now, we know that not everyone's going to return to work. Some people are going to have significant permanent residual disabilities. We're going to deal with that in a future webinar. We're really talking about the person that has reached maximum medical improvement and what happens there. That's really our initial goal in a workers' compensation case. So you don't want to lose that power, that control you have over the case. And the reason this is such a useful uh, power is you can direct the claimant to go and treat with medical facilities that A, you vetted, so you know that these are good providers, and two, that are going to have a contract with you or have a network relationship with you, the carrier or employer, which means they're not going to bill you crazy exorbitant sums. Now, in New Jersey, most of our clients have wonderful medical treatment networks. And in fact, we're discovering that really, we've not really come up with an injury, a condition, or anything where we haven't had an in-network provider that could provide that care. Again, this is your chief way of both providing adequate and appropriate care to the petitioner, but also keeping a handle on cost because you don't want them leaving your network and going to some extremely high cost provider. The reason you don't want that to happen in New Jersey is that New Jersey has no medical fee schedule for workers' compensation cases. I know that sounds crazy because we've got medical fee schedules in New Jersey for all sorts of other things. Like for example, for personal injury claims following car accidents, we have a medical fee schedule, we have medical pathways, we have medical guidance that's been uh, issued by the Department of Labor, I'm sorry, the Department of Insurance, but we don't have it for workers' compensation. And so it's so important to make sure that the petitioner does not depart or escape uh, from our preferred provider network. So that's a really key uh, aspect. We also have the opportunity in New Jersey to control pharmacy or prescription medications that are being provided to the claimant, as well as the diagnostic facilities that the petitioner is going to go to. So all of that is included in your medical power in New Jersey. Now, if you are sitting there and you're saying, Greg, uh, you know, my insurance company that I work for or this self-insured employer, we have we don't have a great network. We don't have a wonderful group of uh, preferred provider network established. Well, the good news in New Jersey is you can go out there and you can just rent one. I mean, there's lots of companies out there, uh, large health insurers, for example, that will sell you access to their preferred provider network. And again, that's a great way of controlling costs and making sure you're getting appropriate care for your petitioner, your injured worker. We also have the opportunity to direct the claimant to go to things like functional capacity evaluations, uh, to submit to any uh, treatment or testing that we're asking them to go to. And again, that's an important way of measuring the person's loss of function and making sure that the treatment is actually restoring function to the petitioner. Our focus in a New Jersey workers' compensation case should be on restoring function, uh, treating the condition and getting the person to a medical plateau as fast as we can. We really want to give them the best care we can possibly get them. Uh, that's one of our, again, one of the chief goals here. When um, uh, providing courses to new claims adjusters uh, who are maybe handling New Jersey cases for the first time, uh, I tell them, hey, if you're on a lost time desk, 
probably where you should be spending most of your time and energy in a New Jersey workers' compensation case is making sure that petitioner is getting to medical appointments, that whatever follow-up care after that medical appointment is going to happen quickly and, and uh, efficiently, getting them to diagnostic testing, and making sure that they're moving through a curative treatment process. In other states, as you know, the claimant has the right to choose and direct their own medical care. For example, we defend cases in New York. The uh, claimant in New York workers' compensation case can go to any doctor they pick, uh, any they choose. Do they go to good doctors? Generally speaking, not really, right? They go to the doctor that their attorney sends them to. But in New Jersey, that doesn't have to happen to you. You can select the physician. You can make sure that the petitioner quickly schedules follow-ups. You know, I've, I've defend cases where when the petitioner is scheduling their own uh, treatment, you know, they go to the orthopedist on a Monday, and the orthopedist says, oh, yeah, you might have an injury here that needs an MRI, so go get the MRI and then come back to me. What does the claimant do? Well, they go and schedule the MRI for a month from now, uh, then they get the MRI, and then they schedule the, the follow-up with the orthopedist two months later, and they stretch it out, and they're not really getting effective care because there's so much delay. But as a risk professional, a uh, claims adjuster in these matters, you can go ahead and just schedule the petitioner's follow-ups. You can schedule their diagnostic testing. You can schedule them for the return visit back to that orthopedic physician. So you can really cut a lot of time out of these cases. And if you're a lost time professional, this is something you should be thinking about doing. I tell my clients that their claims professionals, should, in, when they're handling a New Jersey case, should spend 80 to 90% of their time pushing on the medical, making sure the medical appointments are set, making sure they're kept, making sure that the records get back to the orthopedic physician so that their constant flow of treatment, making sure physical therapy visits are scheduled and attended on a regular basis. You also have power in New Jersey under Section 19 where the petitioner does not show up for medical appointments or where they refuse to go to physical therapy, they refuse to go to diagnostic testing, that's it, their case is over under Section 19. If they're not pursuing active medical care, uh, under Section 19, you can cut them off from ongoing wage replacement, which is a really good incentive to make sure that they're invested in their own care and getting better. So that's really should be the focus. Now, the danger is in New Jersey, if you don't provide medical treatment that's necessary and curative, the petitioner can then go and file a motion for medical treatment uh, before the Division of Workers' Compensation. When they do that, they're essentially saying to the judge of compensation, hey, I needed this specific medical care. Insurer or employer did not provide it to me. Judge, I want you to direct them to do it. And judge, here's the doctor and the facilities that I want to go get treated in. Once that happens and the judge of compensation intervenes in the case, guess who's in control of the case now? the petitioner, the claimant, their attorney, right? Because now they're in the driver's seat in regards to uh, choosing physicians, choosing treatment, choosing the pace or the tempo of treatment, and that can significantly extend the case and increase the cost of medical treatment in that case. And of course, the amount of lost time that you're gonna have in a case. So sometimes though, we've gotta dispute it or we have to challenge the necessity of ongoing care. The petitioner's remedy is through the workers' compensation system. What they can do when we are disputing, denying, challenging, or refusing to authorize care is go to the judge of compensation and say, hey, I really should get this care, and you, judge, should order them to provide it to me. They have no common law right of redress. They can't threaten you. They can't sue you in civil court. In fact, 
there's decisional opinions on this. I have it up on there, the Rothfuss case. They can't threaten you with bad faith. They can't drag you into superior court. Their redress is through the workers' compensation system. And the reason, again, we care about this is because of that loss of medical control. Because the, there's also going to be, in addition to that, the attorney is going to come forward and saying, I demand that you pay me a fee. I had to go into court. And again, I'm speaking as opposing counsel now. I'm speaking as plaintiff's attorney. I had to go into court and ask the judge to authorize this treatment. And now, judge, you should give me a fee. And the way this, the law works, the uh, workers' compensation law works in New Jersey is, the plaintiff's attorney who brings a motion seeking additional medical benefits or lost time benefits can argue that their fee should be based on how much more medical they have obtained. And the standard in New Jersey is 20% of the additional medical care or lost time benefit that is obtained by the plaintiff's attorney. It gives the plaintiff's attorney a powerful incentive to file these motion claims. Let me explain how that works. We have a case in which the petitioner has reached maximum medical improvement. The orthopedic surgeon has come forward and said, you know what, they're at maximum benefit of care. I'm sorry, they're going to have a limp for the rest of their life, but there's really nothing more we can do uh, following this knee injury. Uh, plaintiff's attorney sends them to a second opinion doctor who says, well, there's an experimental treatment that we could do. We could, um, we could inject your knee with a synthetic lubricant or uh, we can do the platelet, uh, the PRP syndrome, or we are sorry, PRP injection therapy, or they come up with some other idea to they could treat the the claimant. If the judge agrees with that position that this experimental uh, treatment is maybe necessary, we will be caught or responsible for paying for that treatment. And let's say the treatment is a surgery or injection therapy or something that costs fifty thousand dollars. Remember, New Jersey doesn't have a fee schedule. The plaintiff's attorney will ask for a fee and most times get it of 20% of the value of the treatment rendered. Okay, Not for the amount of time they spent filing the motion, not for appearing in court, not for sitting down and talking to their client. They're going to get a fee based on how much more additional care they get. And you know, in the context of a non-medical fee state where a, a surgery can cost $100,000, that can easily happen in New Jersey, that's a $20,000 uh, attorney fee exposure for us should the petitioner prevail in that motion. So that's really got to be kept in the back of our minds. Like, hey, there's going to be a medical exposure in this case, but there's also going to be a very significant monetary exposure in addition to the medical treatment that we're paying for and providing, right? So that's really what we need to focus on and be mindful of when we're defending these motions that are brought by claimant. All right. What does the claimant have to bring? Well, they file a motion in court, and you know these things are now electronically filed, uh, but, and there is no specific form they have to file. And, you know, the one wonderful thing I can tell you about New Jersey workers' compensation law, unlike other states, we don't have a lot of filings. There's not a lot of EDI. There's not a lot of special documents you've got to be on top of. Um, but it works the other way too. Really, the claimant can call anything a motion. You, they could write a motion down on the back of a cocktail napkin and mail it into a workers' compensation board. That's valid. So you're going to see motions that look a little different, but they all have to have the same parts, right? Because the burden to demonstrate that they need this medical care is on the petitioner. Our burden is to show, no, we already provided them with all the medical treatment they needed. Their burden is to show that the judge, yes, judge, actually there is some curative care. It has to be curative. So things are going to improve my condition that's been denied me. So their burden is to do that. And they have to file exactly three things uh, to demonstrate this. The first is a notice of a motion. 
Uh, this is a, a, a legal piece of paper that says, hello, I'm filing a motion. It's got to be signed by their attorney. There also has to be an affidavit by the petitioner themselves. And the affidavit has to say essentially, hi, my name is Greg Lois. I'm a petitioner workers' compensation case. I have not been provided all the medical care that I deserve in this case. Uh, the insurance company or employer has refused to meet their responsibility and provide this care to me. And I want the court to direct them to order uh, I want the court to direct the employer or insurance carrier to provide me this treatment. That's what the affidavit has to say. And that affidavit has to be supported by some medical report. Really could be any medical report. It doesn't have to be the treating physician. It could be any medical doctor uh, that the plaintiff's attorney sends them to that says, yep, here's the treatment that we think they should get. So those are the parts of a motion. And you know, if a motion doesn't have all those parts, it's defective on its face. I can't tell you how many times the motion that I see are defective. I see affidavits which are not completed by the petitioner. Instead, they're completed by the petitioner's attorney. I see medical reports that don't say, hey, this treatment is actually necessary. Just say, hey, here's a possible treatment this person can undergo. Uh, we see um, uh, reports written by physicians who have no intention of treating the claimant. They're just writing reports because they were paid $400 to write a report. So those are all of the parts that we um, see. All right. Once that motion is filed, now we're going into a formal litigation procedure that's going to go before the judge of compensation. Okay, the first step is the motion is filed. So we've got to know what's the date it was actually filed. These motions are now currently filed electronically. So it's the date that it's filed uh, with the Division of Workers' Compensation uh, through the website, which is called Courts Online. Next, we have 21 days as the respondent to file an answering statement. And I'll get into the parts of an answering statement and what I think an effective answering statement is. Uh, but the court rules, uh, the administrative code requires an answer and that answer has to be filed within 21 days. We have 30 days to get an IME, right? Because so often uh, the claimant's gonna come in with new medical from a new provider or they're gonna come in with medical from an expert physician. And because we're assuming that the petitioner is already either at maximum medical improvement or under an active course of care, we're typically going to utilize an independent medical expert to come in and say, no, actually this person has reached a medical plateau, or maybe they haven't reached a medical plateau, but the specific care that the petitioner is seeking to have authorized is not curative and it's not necessary at this time. So that's why we'll get an IME. The case will then get listed before a workers' compensation court. Uh, we have 35 days to get our IME report in. And this is a big challenge, particularly nowadays. Our IME doctors are scheduling out months and months right now in New Jersey, very backed up. So you've got to have a good relationship with your independent medical expert to make sure that they're holding days aside in their weekly or monthly calendar for any type of um, motion response IMEs that you have necessary. And generally speaking, you, we should have good relationships with the IME physicians and be able to obtain those IMEs timely. Next, the case is going to go not for a trial or uh, proceeding immediately, uh, but it's going to go for a conference with the judge of compensation. If that conference does not resolve the matter in dispute, then the matter will then be listed for a trial proceeding to take place before a judge of compensation uh, to determine the issue of the necessity of the medical treatment and whether or not the judge should order the respondent, the employer or insurance carrier, to pay for it. So that's the motion. Now, before we move on from this slide, I just want to mark 
out that it does take some time for this motion to both get filed, be responded to, and then finally appear before a judge of compensation. That's your opportunity to try to compromise or resolve the issue. Most uh, plaintiff's counsel, and I find it, it's really dependent on who the counsel is, are willing to resolve a motion. You know, I've seen some very silly motions that have been saying things like, hey, um, we want you to authorize 50 physical therapy visits. And you'll contact the opposing counsel and say, how about if we authorize nine, you know, with three weeks of physical therapy? Will that resolve this? Can you withdraw this silly motion? You don't really need that. I've also seen some uh, petitioner's counsel who are quite predacious. And they're sort of sitting there waiting for some delay in the medical treatment just so they have an opportunity to file a motion and then A, get a uh, opportunity for them to receive an attorney's fee, but also an opportunity to take away our medical control. In those instances, sometimes you can't resolve it amicably, even though we have a lot of time before the case is typically listed before a judge of compensation. In those instances, you may have to prepare for litigation and our steps would be then to get that IME report and then prepare to go forward in court. Let's say you have to go forward in court. You can't resolve it amicably. Um, the uh, petitioner won't withdraw it because the treatment has already been provided or the request is currently moot. What do you do? Well, you can try a motion for medical treatment, right? And I don't want people to forget this. You don't have to compromise these things. You don't always have to say, well, you're asking for 100 physical therapy visits. I want to give you zero because I think you're at maximum benefit of care and there's no curative benefit to these anymore. So let's settle in the middle. You don't have to settle. You don't have to compromise. You know, you can say, you know what, you're, this is as good as it goes and, and it's time to move on to permanency. It's not just talking about permanent residual disability or, or final impairment. Uh, so you can try these things. Uh, and in fact, I think probably more motions should be tried uh, than are currently being tried. I would tell you that probably 90% of them get resolved before any testimony needs to take place. The reason I think that these can be and sometimes maybe should be tried is because of the order of proofs in a trial on medical benefits. And the order of proofs are very favorable both to the respondent and also favorable to resolving the issue, right? So the first thing that happens, remember the petitioner's coming forward and saying, I want this specific medical care they're not giving it to me and I, I need it and it's their obligation and judge, you should order them to do it, right? So the first person who testifies is the petitioner. The petitioner has to come into court and repeat all those things. And generally it's repeat all the things that have been uh, stated in their affidavit in support of the motion. Now this is important, right? Because uh, you know the petitioner has to actually come in and say, yeah, this experimental treatment or this third revision surgery, yeah, if it was offered to me, I would actually do it. So that's my first step. Would you actually even uh, accept the treatment if it was authorized or if the judge ordered it? And so many times the petitioner will say like, well, you know, no, I've had two surgeries already on my knee. The third one I'm really skeptical about. And you say, okay, judge, this is moot, right? Like, what are we doing here? Uh, so that's an opportunity. But, you know, they testify first. You can ask them any question you want. It's not confined just to the medical treatment benefit issue. And you can utilize this as general discovery in your case. Because remember, in New Jersey workers' compensation, discovery is extremely limited. Uh, information is limited. We don't get the opportunity to depose, for example, the petitioner before you go to final trial or final proofs. And so this might be an opportunity to take a bite at that apple. You should be thinking about this. How does this fit in strategically with the way you're defending the overall case? The next person who testifies after the petitioner testifies is any fact witness that we have. Now, sometimes we don't have a fact witness. This is a pure medical issue, right? 
But if the person's working in some capacity or we have information that, for example, um, they're working and we videotape them, maybe we have covert surveillance as we talked about last month that we can deploy in the case, well, this would be the opportunity to do that. Uh, fact witnesses that we typically would call on are the current employer, uh, the uh, covert surveillance agent, or someone who's doing maybe uh, things that are less covert, um, maybe a social media check on the claimant would come in and we'd say, Judge, they're telling you they need this treatment because you know all they can do all day is lay in bed and writhe in pain. But Judge, here's a social media check. They just got back from vacation. Here's them jumping on a trampoline in the Bahamas all weekend. What are we doing here, Judge? You know, this is your opportunity to challenge the claimant's version of events if that's necessary. The next person that testifies would be the medical witnesses on behalf of the claimant. Now, often, this is not going to be a treating physician. This is going to be their IME doctor, their paid expert, their hired gun, who's going to come into court and say, yes, I evaluated them one time at the request of their attorney on the topic of do they need treatment, and here's what my findings are. That's great. That's subject to cross-examination, and that cross-examination will conduct very carefully. I almost dropped my clicker here. Uh, We'll conduct that uh, uh, cross-examination carefully and really get to the heart of whether or not the claimant needs medical treatment. And the last step would be the respondent's medical witnesses. That's our medical witness. That's our expert who provided us uh, a, a report saying, no, this person would not benefit from this specific care or maybe perhaps any additional care. And that person's going to come in to testify and, of course, would be subject to cross-examination led by the plaintiff's attorney. Now, all of this happens pointing over here, all this happens uh, slowly over the period of weeks. Uh, generally speaking, a motion for medding temp does not go into the court record in one day or two days. It goes in in a non-consecutive trial date over the course of several weeks. And what that means is there's lots of opportunity in here to resolve the matter once the trial's begun. Because when the petitioner gets on the stand, generally speaking, their case doesn't get better from there, right? Now they've been cross-examined and we've challenged their version of events, and then we've brought more information into the case. That might be a time to either resolve the motion, and again, that could be a compromise uh, idea, or to settle the whole case. There's nothing that says that after a claimant testifies or brings a motion for medical and uh, temporary that you can't resolve the case. You can't say, judge we're going to go off and we're going to talk about an order approving settlement or judge we're going to do a section 20 that's a lump sum dismissal in new jersey so you you can use this trial sequencing as opportunities in your case where again where there's jeopardy and there's jeopardy for both sides to try to resolve the matter and you don't just have to resolve just the medical aspect of the case you could try to resolve the whole case and we've been real successful with doing that all right there's a second type of motion for medical and temporary benefits in New Jersey, which is called the emergent motion for medical treatment. And this was created about 10 years ago. And the idea for an emergent motion is that the claimant's life is threatened. If they don't get some specific medical care, they will literally die or suffer, quote, irreparable harm, close quote. Okay, so those are the standards. The standard's a lot higher. But because the standard's a lot higher and because hopefully there's a lot more at stake, the motion procedure is extremely quick. In this circumstance, the motion's filed. We have only five days to respond to it. We have to then get our IME done uh, within 15 days, essentially, of the uh, filing of the uh, motion. And the case goes right before the judge of compensation for what's called continuous trial, which means the case starts on a Monday. If we don't finish testimony on Monday, it goes over to Tuesday. It doesn't finish on Tuesday, we go over to Wednesday. And so really the idea is to truncate down these proofs 
to get to a decision very quickly and have the judge of compensation make a ruling because someone's life is at stake. Now, although this was passed um, uh, about 10 years ago to my recollection or so, uh, there have been very few emotion, motions filed in New Jersey. And that's because uh, it's extremely rare that someone's being denied treatment or authorization for treatment, which is truly life-threatening or which truly would cause irreparable harm. And so generally speaking, we don't see these filed very often. In fact, extremely rare that they'd be filed and then extremely rarely would they be successful. And in fact, every emergent motion I've ever defended was dismissed by the judge of compensation, generally at the first conference, or generally by way of a phone call, because the judge said, look, uh, this really isn't an emergent motion. This is really just a regular motion. So it's just important to know that there are these two different options that the plaintiff can follow, both the regular motion for Medintemp or the emergent motion. Emergent motion is so rare, you probably don't even have to know much about it. All right. How do we defend and win on motions seeking additional medical treatment or lost time benefits? How do you win? The first way you win is typically with the rules, the rules, and also more of the rules. And that's because the petitioner has the burden to show that they need this treatment, that it's necessary, that it's curative, or that lost time benefits are necessary and are being withheld. That's a really tough burden for them to actually show. I've seen so many motions that come in and they are literally defective on their face. It's a notice of motion and maybe a medical report, but no statement from the claimant that they've either A, asked for this treatment to be already authorized, B, that it was actually denied, or C, that they would actually even get the treatment if it was authorized and provided to them. And so we see a lot of the motions that come in and they're just defective on their face. Now the court itself, will reject a motion which is defective on its face. It's missing a part, it doesn't have a medical record, it's based on pure hearsay, you know, any other legal defense. We've seen the court throw those out and not even list them for a hearing. But sometimes they get through, right? I've, I've had uh, motions come through uh, where the, uh, the affidavit is complete and, and, and comprehensive and the notice is complete and comprehensive, but there's no medical narrative attached. Or uh, the medical narrative re relies on facts which, uh, the medical provider or the testificant cannot possibly testify to you. In other words, it's just based on hearsay. It's been based on statements that the claimant made. Uh, so for those reasons, we see some portion of them, and it's probably about five or 10% of them, that just get thrown out because they're defective on their face, right? Just know that when you do prevail on a rules-based defense to a motion, Generally speaking, the plaintiff's going to go, oh, wait, I did forget to file that piece of paper. They'll go back, they'll fix it, and they'll refile it again. So just remember, it's kind of almost like a warning, like they're going to do this again, so just be ready for it. The second way, the more common way to defend a motion is by filing a full answering statement. In our uh, practice, we file a full answering statement, which almost looks like an answer to a complaint. We file a certification of counsel, and if I'm handling the case for you, it would be me that would sign or create the certification of counsel, which would include all of the exhibits that I would intend on relying on in court if I'm called on to fully try the case. So I would be attaching medical records, expert reports, any work documentation, personnel file, everything that I'm gonna need, I'm gonna to attach to my certification. So we like to really flesh this thing out and make sure the judge of compensation has everything they need. And the last thing we file with every single motion for men attempt that we defend in New Jersey is a brief. And what we do in the brief is we explain to the judge of compensation 
why the motion should not be granted. And we're going to give them every defense we can come up with, whether it's a rule-based defense, a substantive defense, a factual defense, a medical defense, we're going to make sure it's in that brief. And I really think that's best practice in New Jersey for defense counsel. And you really should be supplementing not just an answering statement, which is the minimum required, but also a certification of counsel. And I also believe a written brief. Now, does it take us a long time to write these briefs? Not really, because we're using some boilerplate. We're gluing it together. We've done this many, many times. And so generally, our briefs are between five and 10 pages long, supporting that certification and supporting that answering statement putting the petitioner to their proofs. The next thing is, it's really easy nowadays to defend a motion for med intent because the testimony is going to go in via video, right? Uh, I appear in 15 courts in New Jersey. Uh, there's only one or two of them. I think it's just Hackensack, really, um, in which the judge demands that everyone be there in person. Everything else is mandatory video. And so presenting your proofs and even getting someone from the location to come in and testify and say, hey, this person's working for us. They don't, they don't, aren't. Uh, acting this disabled when they're in the workplace, all those types of things. It's a lot easier and it's a lot cheaper than it used to be. The other thing you can do in New Jersey is present your medical expert by way of video. That's really reduced the cost of producing a medical expert to come into court and testify that, hey, this treatment they're seeking is not curative and necessary. And so you have this opportunity to present the proofs you should absolutely be doing it. I've often found, too, that the, some of the defenses that we raise and win on are the most basic defenses you can imagine. Things like, was this care actually requested of us? Meaning, did the, was the adjuster ever presented with a request for this authorization? So many times, the petitioner has reached a medical plateau or medical care has been uh, terminated. They go to their attorney at law who sends them to um, their IME doctor down the street and says, oh, you need X, Y, and Z. Let's start over from the beginning. And then they file a motion, and they never actually even ask the employer or carrier to authorize that treatment. That's a defective motion on its face. And so some of these very basic questions have to be answered. And the other question that has to be answered, is the treatment actually curative, right? Is it actually going to improve the person's position? Is it, are, is it going to reduce impairment, restore functionality, get them back to work in some, in some way? Uh, in some exigent circumstances, uh, where it would be completely futile for the claimant to ask for emergent medical care, the judge has come forward and it, there's case law that says, well, where it's futile to request for treatment, there's really no requirement that they request treatment. So think about really emergent medical situations. Person, you know, sustains a significant catastrophic injury at work. Um, they're taken away by an ambulance. Obviously, they don't have time to request authorization or seek out their employer's approval for that treatment. They need emergency care now, right? So that's, you know, there is a check and balance here. And just because they don't ask for it doesn't mean necessarily you're going to prevail in your motion. If the um, asking would have been futile or would have unnecessarily delayed treatment, they actually don't have a requirement to request it. All right, um, so that's a little bit about how we defend motions. Um, when the claimant's testifying with questions I'm going to ask them, hey, do you actually want this treatment? You know, you've had three surgeries. You haven't gotten any better. In fact, maybe you're getting worse. Are you sure you really want to go forward with another one? Um, and so I like to get or require a statement that the petitioner would actually accept the care that they're seeking. I believe that many motions are being driven by plaintiff's attorneys who are seeking an opportunity to create a uh, uh, a attorney's fee opportunity for themselves. I, I think that. And that's one, of, that's one of the most basic questions that I ask. I also go after whether or not the claimant has been offer, authored that 
treatment and then turned it down. Uh, we've seen that as well, where the claimant, it's a three-year-old case, they've been offered surgery three times, they've rejected it each time, you know, they've said, oh, I'm gonna go, it's my brother's birthday next week, so I don't wanna do the surgery now, or I'm going on vacation, can I do the surgery when I get back, that types of things. Um, and, you know, we, we say, judge, look, it's been two years, we, they, we've authorized it three times, they're just not accepting it, judge, the case is over, let's move on to permanency. And the last thing that I want to talk about is temporary disability benefits, wage benefits, because you can file a motion seeking just wage benefits. You can say, yeah, I'm getting adequate medical care, but the thing that I'm not getting is wage uh, benefits. Generally, those are defective on their face. A motion for med and temp should seek medical treatment, and the wage benefits should be attendant to that. Filing a motion for med and temp, just seeking temp, just seeking temporary disability benefits, is going to generally be defective on its face. All right. Uh, Let's jump in. Uh, oh, last little bit. Let's say an order is entered, meaning the motion's been filed, uh, you fully defended it, and now uh, an order has been entered by the judge of compensation directing you, the employer or carrier, to provide medical treatment. Let's be talking about what goes into that order and what you can do with it. First, because it's a final order uh, pursuant to the appellate division rules, you can appeal it. Right? So it's an appealable issue. You have an absolute right to appeal that. Generally speaking, you're not going to win on that appeal. Um, the appellate division, in my experience, has very rarely overturned a motion for med intent decision. I had one um, about three years ago in which we argued that there was no employment. And actually, we also interposed a coverage defense. We were successful in that case. Uh, in the appellate division in showing that the judge of compensation should not have ordered the medical benefits that the judge ordered. But we really prevailed because of a legal issue that the judge did not establish that the accident arose out of in the course of employment. And for that reason, we won. But generally speaking, where it's an accepted admitted case and an order for medical and temporary disability benefits is entered against you, very low likelihood of prevailing on that in the appellate division unless there's an egregious legal error in the underlying trial. But more typically, 90% of these orders that are entered, I want you to be very thoughtful about the specific wording of the order, okay? You want that specific wording to be as narrowly tailored and as specific to your case as possible. I do not permit my adversaries or the judge to make orders that say things like, well, they filed a motion seeking a uh, specific treatment with Dr. Smith. Plus, I will hereby authorize any follow-on treatment with Dr. Smith after they get the specific treatment. I don't like that because that's too open-ended and it really just turns over medical control to Dr. Smith and the plaintiff's attorney forever, right? So we wanna be very careful about limiting the treatment that's actually entered onto the order into the treatment that was actually requested in the motion. And so follow-on treatment should be challenged. I also think you should challenge any order which says the attorney's fee for the claimant's attorney is to abide or to be determined after the treatment is rendered. I think that's unfair because again, it creates that incentive for the claimant to get more and more and more treatment and run up a huge attorney's fee. You wanna be very specific in the order as to what exactly the judge of compensation is directing you, the respondent, employer, or carrier to pay for, and then be very specific about limiting it to that one specific thing. And you're gonna generally wanna pay the attorney's fee then and there, not prospectively. You don't wanna wait a year until the end of the case and then have to go back and figure out, well, what medical treatment was related, what wasn't related, let's fight about that. 
have that fight right then and there and say, Judge, what's a reasonable fee for the amount of treatment that you've just ordered us to pay? We'd like to know that right now. Could you put it on this order? Many judges of compensation will push back against this. Well, how can I do that? And say, well, Judge, they filed a piece of paper. They're going to get a surgery or a diagnostic test or some more physical therapy. Can't you just estimate uh, what you think the uh, fee should be? Can't we talk about that? Let's set it now. And, you know, I like to make arguments like, hey, Judge, don't can't we resolve this? I mean, you're entering an order. We should have some idea of what the impact that's going to be financially on the case. Let's do that right now. So that's what you should be doing even when the order is entered and you haven't prevailed in your defense. And that's just setting yourself up either for that appeal or to make sure you're not taken advantage of later in the case when the claimant says, well, judge, not only did you authorize this one specific treatment, but everything else that flows from that. And as you know, it can go on forever. So uh, those are our uh, sort of ideas for how to constrain and limit uh, the amount of your overall exposure. All right, let's dive into some live question and answer. I've still got a lot of people on the line right now, so I'm hoping there's some good questions in here. Uh, Monica says, Greg, I can't hear anything. Did the presentation start? Yes, it did. Um, we had some issues in the beginning, but we're back. Uh, Michael asked the question, uh, can you appeal the motion for med and temp if you lose? And then he wrote, Oh, Greg, you already answered that. Thanks. So yes, the answer is absolutely you can appeal it, right? You're not stuck with it. It is appealable as of right. And really, your defense counsel should be advising you at the time the appeal is entered. Hey, should you appeal this? What's it going to cost to appeal? And what is your likelihood of prevailing on appealing that issue? All right, so good questions. Thanks, Michael, for your uh, question. I'm sure uh, someone else was thinking of it, and I'm glad I actually answered it in the body of the presentation. All right, uh, I hope everyone's had an opportunity to download the handbook that I put into today's uh, notes. Um, any questions, please feel free to ask them of me. As you can tell, I love this stuff. I've been talking for 45 minutes. Uh, Kendrick is very patient here. He runs the production. is like, come on, Greg, it's time for lunch. Let's go. Uh, but thanks for joining us today, and I'll see you guys all next month. Bye.